right, and welcome everybody to another episode of Work Stoppage. I'm John. I am Lena. I'm Dan. And if you like the show and you want to hear twice as many episodes per month, you can always throw us five bucks a month on Patreon. Don't remember or don't forget to join the Discord. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, throw us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. And well, could we give them something to not remember? <laughs> Isn't that just like the, the whole show? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. No, we're, let's dive right in. You're right. Let's go. Cool. Well, yeah, our follow up this week is about the farmer strike in India. It seems that they've actually been getting some traction there, and the Supreme Court has paused the implementation of three new farm laws, which were all very unpopular among the farmers of the country, which is pretty interesting. And certainly not the way politics would be going down in the United States. So I'm having trouble tracking exactly what this news means. Yeah. So the what I understood, and, and I really suggest that people become a patron and go check out our actual deep dive on the issue. Um, that was, what, like episode 25 or something like that? Yeah, mm-hmm. episode 25. And uh, so go back and check out, like, the the reason why the general strike happened and, like, the pre-stuff ro- rolling up to this. But basically, there was uh, the Supreme Court that said that these laws might be, like, unconstitutional of a sort, right? Like, um, similar to, like, how the Supreme Court would work in the United States. Yeah, the understanding from, it, it's a little strange, but the, what I took from it was basically that the the court seems to be ruling that the, the Indian federal government um, basically hasn't taken the public concerns against the law and, like, its effects on the populace into enough account. And so they're saying, all right, look, these protests are really bad for business. <laughs> so you're going to need, we're going to put this shit on pause and we're going to do everyone's favorite liberal solution. We're going to form a committee. <laughs> hey, more committees. To grievances. And it's like, look, this is, this is, this is a good step. Like it's good that they're pausing the laws, but like, the fact that it's to form a committee to hear grievances like this is your very typical like way of being like, Oh no, we hear you. We hear your concerns and they're totally real. Now, please stop protesting, go home and go back to work. (laughs) The committee is going to take care of it. Well, a lot of times like committees don't even give you like a a little token gesture, right? Like they literally just form the committee so that they can say, well, we formed a committee and we heard you on this and we decided that the thing we were going to do anyway was still the best course of action. And then like there's this extra layer of like sanctimonious politics on top of it. that's like, well, if you don't respect the committee's decision, then I have trouble believing you have faith in the political process at all. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And even then like, it, these the committee is there just to is it even going to have the workers on it like are they going to hear like are they going to invite all of the people that were in the general strike into this committee well they claim that they're go- that the whole point of the committee is to hear the grievances of all the farmers but um i actually really liked the response from the union where they said, I don't consider the Supreme Court order as a win, but at least it's a good step. After the court order, the government, which was adamant about these laws, is going to step back, uh, which is what uh, Paramjeet Singh of the Indian Farmers Union or the BKU told Al Jazeera. Um, He said that the union leaders are going to meet this week and discuss on what they're going to do. But I also love that um, one of the other unions, 
had one of their representatives, uh, Mahavir Singh, told Al Jazeera that the union will only call off the protests when the laws are actually repealed. And he said, quote, our simple demand is revoke the laws. Unless the laws are repealed, we will continue our protest. That's that, my guy. Absolutely. That's the energy we need <laughs> in these sorts of things. Be like, hey, cool. You've acknowledged it. Now repeal the goddamn laws. Well, and that's the other thing is like moments like this where the government is like, we're going to form a committee. That's a moment where like a lot of labor organizations and organizations in general just kind of like lose steam because they're like, oh, they're finally listening to us. But when they form a committee, the only thing that that should do is let you know that they're scared enough that they're going to take you seriously. So you should double down your efforts on getting exactly what you want. Yeah, this actually reminds me of, of my point actually that I stopped making. It was that the committee is there actually just as a complacency tactic specifically like they have heard what the grievances are they know what the grievances are all of these people know what the demands are what is going to happen in order to like what they have to do in order to stop these protesters and strikers like what you do is you meet the demands. And yeah. we say it all the time is you meet the demands and, and the demand for the law to be repealed. Isn't even like, it's not even that radical of a demand. Like it's not like, no. it's not like they're going out there and being like, you need to revoke these laws. And, uh, also, uh, we're going to put in a communist government. Like that would right. be the like full on radical move. This is just like, get rid of these shit laws. Right. So like, I'm really glad that they're holding firm on this. It's, it's yeah. really awesome to see the, the farm workers though, did actually have a pretty good list of demands, including one of the ones that we thought was the, the coolest demand out of any of them, which was basically release all political prisoners. And they were yeah. very broad in how they described what a political prisoner was. And I think we, I think what we did here on the show was kind of sum it down to the idea of political prisoners. At least if you've listened to the, the show before how we've described what that is and that's basically uh almost everyone in jail so. yeah well it's like a lot of agitators it's like teachers who were accused of teaching the wrong stuff in class like some a lot of poets have been jailed across yep. india for like writing poetry against the government like it's not like they like burned down cop stations right. which would be cool but that's not what they did like they literally like in some cases wrote poems that's actually i mean this is a weird tie-in but that's actually an aspect that I think people should look at for stuff that's probably going to start happening here because right. a lot of what like the Modi government has done to crack down on people like teachers and poets is they, they created this, uh, this concept of the urban Naxalite. Uh, where they just start, and, and you see this with like, you know, the right here where they call anybody who's doing a protest is Antifa. communist. Antifa, yeah. Right, Antifa, yeah. yeah. And, and so the, like the BJP does the same thing where they're like, oh, these people said something critical of the government. Clearly that means they're an urban gorilla and they're trying to overthrow the state. And so these we have to These urban gorillas are poets. Yeah, it just gives them this cover to completely crack down on any form of dissent. And We're so- We're going to stop yeah. teaching poetry in school. Yeah. I mean, they really want to. They want to, like, divest the humanities of all their funding, yep. right? Like, the United States, no, which is crazy because... No, we've never done that. No, we're, we've we're never, the, ever done that, ever. Well, it's, <laughs> it's so funny because the United States is, like, the entertainment capital of the world. Right. And we are, we're like, oh, we need to train more people to get, like, Silicon Valley engineering jobs. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Do you even have any idea how, like, a society is constituted economically or socially? Well, and that's what I don't like about this whole capital riot thing is like why can't donald trump just learn to code like really (laughs) (laughs) anyway yeah well talking uh speaking of uh you know really just awesome labor actions and having the right line uh it seems like several quite a few in fact 
teachers from the Chicago Teachers Union have engaged in uh, wildcat labor actions in defiance of the totally unacceptable COVID-related health conditions at the schools that they were teaching at. Um, so the Chicago Teachers Union Twitter account has been steadily live tweeting since the 9th when all of this stuff started to go down. Uh, and I really recommend that you follow them. But this week, pre-kindergarten and diverse learning staff at Chicago Public Schools were obligated to return to their buildings. The planning for this return was not bargained in any capacity between the mayor-appointed CPS administrators and the Chicago Board of Education, the Teachers Union, and the Chicago Principals and Administrators Association. So there's a lot of interested parties here, um, let alone students, families, and communities most affected by the reopening. So when they were all obligated to return to their buildings, roughly half of Chicago Public Schools staff uh, refused, just refused to come back in. Some of them logged in from home and continued to teach remotely. Some of them refused to teach at all. Some of them set up outside the building in, um, in like a visible strike, uh, facing sub-freezing temperatures. And unfortunately, the whole reason that they had to do all this stuff wildcat is that due to the quote-unquote pending nature of arbitration over return to school buildings, their union's hands are technically legally tied as far as calling for actions. So these teachers were in a position where they knew that like they were endangering their own health and safety plus the health and safety of others upon returning and there was no way for them to go for like to get recourse through their union. So they simply started going outside. And uh, there's a really wonderful tweet at the top of our notes here. If we all want to listen to it, um, it's, it's the teachers themselves actually speaking. All right, everybody, Jackson here. I'm standing with two teachers from Velma Thomas who are out here expressing their rights, uh, demanding that they not be forced into unsafe return conditions at CPS. I'm wondering if you can introduce yourselves and say a little bit about why you're here today. Sure, um, I'm Laura. I'm a general education here, general education teacher here at Thelma Thomas. This is my fourth year, and we're here outside for the second day to fight for our community and fight our right for um, unsafe work conditions. Um, we here are a CPC school, which means we have only preschool classrooms. We have seven classrooms coming back, almost 30 staff in general. There's still a lot up in the air as far as where we could eat lunch. A lot of our safety concerns about having a lot of adults come back with very few kids. I feel we are exceptional, exceptional, amazing school. A lot of people are scared. Everyone is in support of what's happening. And we have our community and organizations here backing us up today. We're feeling a lot of love and support. We're gonna to continue to fight for our community, fight for ourselves and fight for our families because it's what we feel is the right thing to do. Absolutely, my name is Jessica and I'm a general education bilingual pre-K teacher here as well. And Laura said all of the amazing things that we're out here doing. We're a small school, um, but every single classroom and every single teacher is expected back on Monday. And for a very small building, um, there's not a lot of space for all of us to come back all at the same time. So um, the teachers that have chosen to stay outside of the building have done it not only for their safety and health, but also for their coworkers so that less adults are in the building at least for those who are too afraid to refuse to return, we can provide some more space for them by being outside of the building. Congratulations, really valiant effort to defend our families, our communities, and school staff. Yeah. Thank you. Very cool. Um, 
Yeah, I, I love love hearing from the workers. I one thing I've noticed, um, though, it, and it, this is probably just something that I, I like to clarify acronyms. Um, that CPS I'm guessing stands for Chicago Public Schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there are other things that that stands for, but I just want to clarify that for the listeners real quick. But yeah, no, it's it's really um, it's good to see the the sort of like wildcat action, wildcat actions because if the union actually is tied, their hands are tied, like you know with what they can do, quote unquote, legally, it is actually up to the workers themselves as the actual union to go right. out there and, and do those actions outside of their established organization. And and you love to see it. It's really cool to see this happen at small schools, especially. I feel like a lot of people who work for smaller institutions don't feel like they have like enough political power just in their their workers and coworkers. But like these people said, this is just a a like a preschool building. They only have about 30 staff on site, but it's, you know, it's literally a matter of life or death and so they had to take yeah. this situation into their hands and, you know, be, being absent from the school isn't just for your own health and safety. It's also so that like uh Jessica said if anybody is too afraid, you know, for the sake of their job or whatever, to refuse to come into school, then that in turn makes the school safer for them to be at. Right. And it's just, the school's thing has been one of the most infuriating aspects of the U.S.'s absolute lack of response to COVID to me. Yeah. Because it puts the teachers in an absolutely horrible position. Because, I mean, obviously, returning to school in person at all during this, like we, we have 4,000 people a day dying of COVID, but we're going to cram people into buildings that were probably built in like 1961 or some shit right? and have no ventilation except occasionally these insane, like hastily constructed, like ventilated pods that they're building for people who might be COVID positive, which is insane. Yeah. Um, I love to go and take my classes inside of a wild, wacky arm foiling inflatable (laughs) tube, man. Yeah. And also, I mean, like we've known in like Boston schools where they thought that ventilation meant cracking a window and putting a rotating fan in it. (laughs) <laughs> right. But, and it's, I've, it sucks because like you obviously on the one hand have the obvious thing that schools shouldn't be back in session in person. Schools should be right. entirely remote, but because of the fact that this country refuses to pay people to stay home, which again is the only way to control the virus, the, the schools become like absolutely critical for working people, working parents, because they can't afford to stay home because the state won't do the right thing and, and either, you know, actually appropriately fund either, you know, unemployment benefits or the more, the better thing, just paying people to stay home. So if, if, even if you have a a place that goes all remote learning, which would be good, uh, you have so many people who couldn't take advantage of it because nobody can be home to watch their kids. And, And so like these teachers get stuck between like wanting to help these families but wanting to, to also make it so that, you know, they aren't put in harm's way. The staff isn't put into these like horribly dangerous situations. And you're not having these situations where kids contract the virus and, and they'll probably be fine, although not necessarily, right. but then they take it home and then their parents or grandparents or other people get sick. And, and you just have the, the schools fucking like, 
concern trolling everybody shitting on the teachers by saying like, Oh, well, you know, we have to have the schools open. It's got, it's for the kids. It's like, no, it's right. not. It's just to keep right. the businesses open so well, that the profits keep. And I, I, I want to actually just as a, as a point, cause you brought up, um, paying people to stay home. And I, I just want to put out a little, um, advocation for our sister podcast, death panel, who, uh, in their most recent Patreon episode talk, uh, did uh, a case for lockdowns. And I, and I really, uh, suggest that especially uh if you can uh be a patron here but also be a patron for them and go check out um uh, their most recent episode as well because it's super um super good take on on the case for lockdowns and the people who are fighting against it and what their arguments are because they're bullshit absolutely well and like further to the point about it being mostly an issue of employment right like how do we get the adults out of the house so they don't have to take care of their kids at a place like um velma thomas where they deal with very very young children that issue is turned up to 11 right because if you have a a middle schooler or a high schooler could reasonably be expected to if they're you know a, a responsible kid or whatever sit in their room and do their work on their iPad or their computer. But if you have a four-year-old, there is no autonomy there. There has to be somebody structuring the child's time. And that's simply not feasible for, you know, even if you're working from home, you can't basically run a classroom and an office at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, like, and we've, we've talked about schools and I'm sure we're going to talk about schools again. Um, again, Following up with the, I love following up with the Chicago teachers because, um, as far as teachers unions go in the United States, they are a stellar example for uh, what every single teachers union should be at a bare minimum. Yep. Um, Yeah, they rule. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are actually one of the things that we've been covering a lot lately is a bunch of international news, especially uh, South American news. If you checked out our last Patreon episode, we covered Peru and Argentina a bit. Um, today we are covering, uh, Columbia and, uh, yeah, yeah. go ahead and take that away, Dan. Um, so, uh, this is a, an issue that I've been personally following for a while because, um, I think that developments going on in Columbia politically generally are, uh, kind of a preview of stuff we're probably going to see here as uh-huh. the U S empire starts to continue, well, continues to collapse. Um, And so this is uh, an interview from Labor Notes uh, with a union organizer there, um, and it's titled, Despite Escalating Assassinations, Columbia Farm Workers Union Fights for the Right to Land. And just some background for this, um, Columbia has been one of the, the, if not the most dangerous places in the world to be a union organizer for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, The United States has been... Uh, essentially using it as a testing ground for CIA, DEA, and other various nefarious agencies to uh, come up with new and more horrific ways to suppress labor and left movements. Um, but more recently... Um, Including murder. Oh, yeah. No, lots and, and lots of murder. not limited to that. Um, between 2012, uh, when uh, the country's free trade agreement with the U.S. entered into force, and May 2019, uh, 172 union activists were murdered. Um, 
and yeah. this has. <laughs> I guess taken... they're not just dabbling, right? They're, they're, yeah. This is this is an active uh, an active pursuit of how many yeah. union organizers can we kill, right? Yeah. Well, a lot of people talk about like, oh, did you know Coca Cola had those union organizers murdered in like the sixties, or like, did you know you know <laughs> 90s, United actually. Fruit nineties? Yeah, or it, yeah. Well, well, it was United Fruit, now Chiquita yeah. Banana, that had them their bodies uh, shot and thrown into the ocean, and it's like yeah. that shit never stopped. Like just nope. because it appeared in a history book doesn't mean that there's not a through line of that that continues to this present day and just looking at these notes that you outlined in in our google document here dan i was shocked to see the scale that it's still operating at today yeah so that's the other thing like just as a a, some background on this like i i think most people who are on the left and have looked into you know some of the the history of the u.s's crimes throughout the world are are aware Mm -hmm. of like generically the the horrible things that the u.s did during the cold war in latin america to suppress various left movements but the thing i want to emphasize with this is that that didn't stop when the cold war ended that has continued and if anything has actually ramped up recently Mm -hmm. um especially because so one thing people might know about colombia is that for a a very long time for decades um they had a intense uh guerrilla movement led by uh farc the revolutionary armed forces of colombia and there was a, a peace agreement signed in, I think, the end of 2019. Oh, no. In 2016, uh, there was a peace agreement signed between the government and FARC, arranging for FARC to come in uh, to be legitimized as part of the process and to put in amnesty for, for guerrilla leaders. Basically, like, look, we're going to the civil war basically needs to end. We want to incorporate this into the political process. And unsurprisingly in a state that has been nothing but a client state of the United States, that was all a lie. And ever (laughs) since that peace agreement was signed, all that has happened is continuous massacres and assassinations against anyone associated with FARC, anybody who's associated with the union movement, like various social leaders, indigenous folks, and currently, since that, they're experiencing levels of violence not seen since the height of the conflict. Um, wow. Currently, part, uh, movement leaders, union members, and participants in the peace process are being killed at a rate of more than one person per day. Um, and with the rest- and with the restrictions on movement due to the COVID, that just makes it even easier for the right wing death squads uh, in- operating in the country to find people because. They're as mostly always going to be at home. Right. Yeah. As soon as you find out where someone is, they're probably going to be there for a while. Right. right. And, and so this interview is, is with um, one of the head organizers of uh, this major union there, uh, Fensuagro, the National Federation of Agricultural Unions, which was created as an attempt to unite all the various unions and advocacy groups advocating for the rights of farm workers, laborers, and rural indigenous and Afro-Colombian people. And it's mainly been focused on, you know, two things. One, the economic basis, trying to get comprehensive land reform, which that's been, those two words are the thing that get you shot by the CIA in, in Latin America for the past basically 70 years is land reform. Yeah, I believe it. The Latifundia system never went away in most of these countries. It's still there. It's just that... The what system? Uh, the, the Latifundia system is basically a semi-feudal system by which uh, big landowners control the vast majority of the land and, and essentially trap the agricultural workers as basically still serfs. Like, technically, it's not that. And technically, they're, right. you know, 
proletarian workers, but it functions as essentially a, a semi-feudal relationship. Well, and okay. especially in like a dominantly agricultural society, like right. a lot of South American countries still are. Right, exactly. And so you have all of these millions of, of poor farmers and farm workers who uh, are either just running subsistence farm or they're growing, you know, cash crops who have no legal right to their land, despite the fact that they've been there their whole lives, they've worked it the entire time. Nobody else has worked it, but because of the way that the government is structured in Colombia, they're like, no, 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 this, this is all owned by agribusiness, large scale landowners, transnational extraction corporations, and also narco traffickers, which this is the other thing that you'll hear from people about the U S involvement in Colombia, which is, oh, well, don't you know that's where all the, the drugs come from? And that's why we have to be in there. That's why we have to be spending all this money. Except for the fact that the vast majority of the drug trade in Colombia is actually controlled by the DEA itself. And the DEA's operations there are not to stop the flow of drugs, but, but to, to make sure them, that they right? maintain, exactly, that they yeah. maintain well, their control over it. And to make, yeah, to make sure that the profits that come off the top right. of the drug trade keep funding the DEA. Exactly. Because they don't care. The DEA doesn't care if if drugs move around the DEA, well, or rather they don't care about whether or not drugs move around for some arbitrary moral reason. Like a lot of people think they do. Like there's some like moral enforcement agency that, that keeps too many people from getting addicted to drugs. They are a profit earning basically company that right. works under the auspices of the U S government. I mean, like right. they're just a, a, a carceral enforcement arm of the United States government. And we know how our prison system is. It's always exploitative. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's well, and we basic. always like we, we we watch all these TV shows, and they're like these are the DEA and CIA agents in Colombia, and it's like they're like all obviously corrupt, and like they're doing all this stuff behind their supervisor's back, and it's like the only lie there is that that stuff is actually officially <laughs> the sanctioned. They don't know. Yeah, they don't right. have to hide it. Yeah, it's 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 what they were told to do. So right. So, so this union, Fensuagro, uh, about half its members are family farmers, half are farm workers. And just in the last four years alone, 38 members of the union have been murdered. Um, uh, wow. the, in, in 2013, they participated in the national agriculture strike, which was a big strike that lasted for almost two months and eventually constituted like it. And that helped form this united agrarian ethnic and popular movement, uh, focused on, you know, land reform and ending the violence. Um, and that led up to that, that laid some of the groundwork for what was hailed at the time as this, this uh, amazing peace agreement in 2016 uh, that was supposed to stop the violence, but all it ended up doing was making it even easier for the government to find the people that had been opposed to their forces. And so right. all they've done is ramped up assassinations of leaders of, you know, unions, indigenous federations, et cetera. Um, and so Fensu Agro, who are, you know, painted as this radical left union, uh, has these four main points that they're fighting for, which are first access to land. They demand formal ownership of and paperwork of that land for farm workers. Cause that's the thing is that you'll have these mm -hmm. workers who, and, and farmers who have lived on this land for generations, farming it. Nobody else has ever owned that land. And then some, uh, like major agribusiness or rancher will just in the capital be like, uh, here's a sack of money and now I own all this land. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and that money's like, not I redrew your maps end. for you. I'm sorry. Yeah. I just wanted to let you know that your maps were wrong and I own everything. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. they're demanding like t the actual title that these people obviously, you know, deserve to the land that they've worked for generations. Uh, number two, um, 
they've created a, fu- a fund to help farm workers get land who otherwise wouldn't have access because they can't afford it. Nice. Um, number three, they're demanding the return of land that it's taken from, um, which the government has genuflected towards doing some of this where they'll be like, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. No, these people had their stuff taken from them. Here's a title. And then those people will be assassinated. And then the companies will just seize uh. the land. And they are demanding that the Federation be recognized as a victim of this constant conflict and demanding, you know, protection from repression. And the fourth point is that is, is related to specifically the production conditions in uh, Colombia, which is uh, the fourth point recognizes that there are more problems with coca production when there is no government regulation. And w- what they mean by that is that there's been a, ze- a quote unquote zero tolerance policy for coca production over the past 20 years because of the U S arrangement with Colombia, which is not true. Right. It's a zero tolerance policy for coca production outside the, you know, control of the people that are supposed to be doing it. Right. Um, so and, well, and they're, it, they're like asking that the coca production be officially recognized in a capacity right. that makes it so that anybody who wants to work in the industry can at least get a fair job that has state oversight as opposed exactly. to working on some CIA black sites, secondary black site that's just a bunch of guys harvesting coca leaves and being treated you know terribly the entire time. Right, and, right. If, and if you're even caught, like even if a union organizer talks to you, you're probably going to end up, you know separated from your family permanently. Right. Yeah. And, and so they're also pushing for, you know, the standard sorts of things, any group of workers would push for the state to increase focus on health and education instead of pouring all of their money into their army, uh, uh, focusing on, on laws to actually make sure that people out in the countryside have access to just incredibly basic services. Um, and not, and they've just been stonewalled completely by the government. And, Part of the reason that I wanted to bring this up is that I, a, I think that the people that are continuing to do this work in Colombia are some of the most courageous, like, uh, union organizers in the world, because this is just such an insanely dangerous place to do that sort of work. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the fact that you have these, these hundreds of thousands and millions of people, um, standing up against this violence, despite the fact that they like, these people don't have fucking AKs and drones these people are, are organizing in areas where they're not even given masks. So people have to wear coca leaves as like improvised masks because the government is providing any sort of PPE. And these are the people standing up against death squads armed to the teeth by the United States. And like, that is incredibly inspirational. But the, the other reason I wanted to bring it up is because of our new incoming president, Joe Biden, who played an enormous role in creating all of the problems here because he was one of the main authors of a, uh, of a strategy called plan Columbia, uh, which has been in place since 2020 and is the main thing that's been zero production for private coca, um, like coca leaf uh, Mm -hmm. production, uh, zero tolerance for that. Um, just funneling absolutely enormous amounts of money into Colombia's military so that they can, you know, fly around the country in U S helicopters and spray agent orange and other defoliants on anyone's land that they don't like, whatever they're using it for. They'll just, Oh, they were growing coca. And it's like half the time it'll turn out. Oh no, this is just land that some rancher wanted to seize. And so they flew over to spray it so that they could, you know, take it after they were no longer able to grow anything there. And this, the other thing is 
you'll hear this stuff about, no, no, the U.S. is just funding the military and the military isn't doing this, except for the fact that, you know, the entire history of, of all of this oppression in, in Latin America is shows time and time again, the people making up these unknown masked death squads are always off-duty police and military, like every yes. single time. And so yeah. that's like, it's the same people they're claiming are supposed to be, you know, uh, ensuring stability and, and, and protecting the populace. And there's, there's, it's reading the stories after these is, is horrifying because like you just hear time and time again, where the, the, the people will appeal to the military and they'll show up and they'll spray the, the village with machine gun fire as like, Oh, the fact that you even called us about this means you oppose the government and are the enemy and are our enemy. It's, it's, yeah. it's terrifying. Yeah. It's awful. And this is all because this is all run by the United States. And well, yeah, it's like fucked up that Biden could even have this big of a hand in something like this, right? Like it's easy to talk about him authoring the crime bill or whatever other, you know, awful shit he's done inside of the United States, but where we really fail as a country. And I think this is just particularly indicative of America's attitude towards the world in general is that like the greatest crimes of the United States are not against United States citizens in most cases, like the, the outsized amount of influence that somebody like Joe Biden of all fucking people, like a, a reanimated scarecrow has over <laughs> the lives of millions of Colombians and, and yeah. indeed causes the deaths of sometimes thousands of them at a time is just like too mind boggling to think about. Yeah. I think that, um, the thing that I want to point out is that we've often talked about the importance of you unionizing your own job and like the reasons why you would do that sort of thing. And and these, ex these um, union organizers in Columbia are a great example as to why even uh, the sort of work here in the United States is important because if we're able to weaken capital from the Imperial core, I mean, that's something that we is our absolute responsibility. Like these, like we need to be, and not, not that we can really, Really be making those direct connections with just like unionizing our job, increasing, you know, our like material conditions against capital or anything like that. But, but just creating a framework where there is a lot of organization so that um, our unions can actually hold solidarity with those unions so that we can go and actually back them up and do more uh, large scale actual stopping of all of these fucking terrible things that consistently attack people um, all over the world, especially in the global South. Yeah. The, like the example I always like to point to for that sort of thing, exactly what you're talking about is uh, the ILWU's uh, strike actions against yeah. uh, shipping anything to South Africa, which yep. played a, a very big role in changing U.S. policy towards South Africa. And eventually, you know, obviously the primary role in South Africa was, you know, done by the South African people, but shutting down the economic uh, backbone of propping up the apartheid economy played a huge role in its collapse. And so the stronger we can make the labor movement here and the more that we can like pull the labor movement together instead of it being a bunch of siloed individual unions, the more power that movement has to show proletarian internationalism with the rest of the world and demand that the government stop doing horrible shit like this. Like we're not going to get rid of this sort of behavior by, you know, voting in more Democrats. But if, you know, every logistics worker in the United States went on strike and is like, yeah, so, you know, all those, uh, just in time supply chains, all you guys run, uh, yeah, we're going to shut that down for a week, uh, uh, unless you change these policies, 
that's how you get shit changed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and if we had that kind of like, that's that's the reason that the labor movement is so sus- suppressed in the U.S., right? Is right. because like we're the glue that holds all this economic across oppression across the world together. Like it's also kind of the U.K. and it's also kind of France and Germany and a few other yeah. actors, but the U.S. is the principal thing that maintains all this. We have the military bases, we have the contracts, we have the influence over the other major powers, and it's like. You know, that's that's why it's it would be a so difficult to get like the the kind of labor movement that we'd like to see in the US, but by that same by that same token, it is also the the very imperative that makes it so necessary, right? Like yep. uh, uh, it doesn't have to be a socialist revolution. I'd like one, but even just like a, a revolution in the way that we think about organized labor in the United States would be enough to change so many people's lives for the better, not even just here, but all around the world. Yeah. I think that that leads very, very uh, like easily into our next story about one of our favorite friends of the pod, uh, <laughs> Richard Trumpka. <laughs> God damn it. There's not just a Cheeto in the White House. There's a Cheeto in the fucking Union Hall as well. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this is basically just like an update. Uh, I don't even know if it contains any information that we might that we haven't really covered already on the show. But uh, it's just it's just a quick synopsis from Payday Report that I thought was interesting. Uh, And it says that last week. The AFL-CIO and nearly every major union in the country sent out statements calling on Trump to resign from the presidency or be impeached immediately. And so this is supposed to be like some kind of cool thing that the unions did, right? But it was instead of the suggestion that many uh, member unions in these big union organizations had been making, which is to call a general strike. Yeah, Yeah. that we were talking about. And we were saying like, oh, you know, wouldn't it be nice if this happened? And we don't think it's going to happen, but... Richard Trumka, it turns out, was almost single-handedly, like Barack Obama calling the NBA players while they were on strike, sent a letter to, who was it, the Vermont uh, AFL-CIO? Oh, yeah. They were actually the ones who were who we talked about when we were talking about the general strike. They were the, the member union that specifically was like, you know what, this is a threat that, you know, Trump's being a fucking dipshit and... Uh, and we gonna, we're going to need to hold them accountable. And uh, what, Trumpka is just like, no, no, don't do it. Yeah, yeah don't I love do how it. It's, it's just the classic bureaucrat answer of, well, per Rule 19 of the rules governing AFL-CIO <laughs> state central bodies, quote, no state central body shall have the authority or power to order any local union or other organization to strike or take a strike vote. Bullshit. Therefore, the Vermont State Labor Council may not hold a vote to authorize any strike. Thus, any debate is not germane at your convention. Yeah, that so, so honestly, ridiculous. fuck the AFL-CIO. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, like if that's really a rule, what the hell are they, like, what, how the fuck is that a rule? That's like putting a no-strike clause in your union. Well, that's why these, like, the AFL-CIO is, like, so obviously corrupt. Like, I feel like every week looking up union stuff, I learn a new reason why, like, the AFL-CIO has fallen so, so, so far from what it was, like, once intended to do. And it makes me wonder, like... You know, there's a there's a long history in the United States of being a lot further left than is acceptable, not necessarily mm-hmm. a communist, but being a lot further left than is acceptable typically in Vermont. You know, that's not just the home of Bernie Sanders. It's also the home of Murray Bookchin and apparently some very cool AFL-CIO members who wanted to call a general strike. It's like, why... 
how do you how do you escape the gravitational well of these huge union organizations when it becomes this obvious that they're not really there to help you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I and, don't know. And like I don't I know I was just calling for like we have to, you know, unite all the union movement together, but specifically the AFL CIO has been through almost its entire history a break on the labor movement rather than an actual boon to right. it. And not just here, but also like this, that ties in with stuff that was going on in Colombia and all over Latin America, like mm -hmm. AFL CIO or AFL CIA, as other people might call it, um, <laughs> had operates a, 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 um, a foreign division that helps organize free labor movements around the world, which what that does is that goes into areas where uh, the U.S. State Department is worried about uh, a country becoming too socialist or, you know, really just enacting any law that threatens any U.S. capital interests. And so they go in there and they form unions that are built just like this, that are set up as like, yeah, no, we're, we're a real union that for some reason, none of the member unions are allowed to vote to strike. <laughs> And so it's and like so an they, economic mission trip kind of, yeah, they're like, but, well, that's like the gentlest imperialism we have is like, why don't we set yeah. them up with a useless union? Well, the, and that's the nicer version. Whereas in like certain, they the, the AFL CIO has directly participated in multiple coups in Latin America, including the one against, um, Allende, um, in 1973, right. uh, where, where they set up these unions to counter, um, red trade unions that were being set up by communist parties in the area. And then, used those uh, to like infiltrate other bodies and send information and intelligence to the CIA and also provide them with, you know, like an immediate response apparatus yeah. so they can yeah. like set up these like fake protests. Any, wow. any time where a union is going to collaborate with the, with the government, I mean, that's just, that's just getting rid of dual power. Like that's, yeah. just, that's counter to the actual goals of the union movement and it fucking sucks. Oh yeah. Well, it, it's just like, um, I mentioned Murray Bookchin earlier and his big gripe with like the union movement in the United States was that in many cases by the sixties or the seventies, you would be in a union shop and the union, uh, stewards would be working for the company and yeah. walking around giving you like company provided union materials. And it's like, in what universe does that even make sense? Like that, that just like folds, all, it folds all the antagonism out of the relationship. It makes it totally fucking pointless. It's, it's a pure contradiction right there. <laughs> so anyways, we need, a, we need a rank and file revolt in the AFL CIO and we, we need it as soon as possible. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, speaking so of rank and file revolts, uh, <laughs> apparently Google is pretty fucking terrified of one and they have been monitoring their employees for quote unquote disruptive language. So I guess the, <laughs> all of this talk of unionization, <laughs> you know, the Google folks who unionized here in Pittsburgh and, and the, the drives to do it in a couple of other places, uh, have got them really thinking that maybe they should be reading more of their employees emails. Hey, yeah. my favorite corporate behavior of all time. Yeah. yeah. So like right at, we, we just covered the the formation of the alphabet workers uh union and right on cue immediately google starts this crackdown um where like employees 
that are running internal email discussion groups have been asked to, quote, undertake training in how to moderate them, enabling them to flag sensitive or controversial comments. Oh, yeah, my God. I, yeah, this, these are, uh, these are me- required meetings, uh, of course. You are, these are akin to captive audience meetings, uh, training you to union bust your own union. Um, and it is, it is the exact kind of CIA shit that we were, yeah, you're right, that we've been talking about and we just talked about with the AFL-CIO and other shit like that. It's just They like, want to make you a fucking cop in your workplace. Yep. They want to make you a fucking corporate cop. They want every prisoner in the fucking jail of going to a job to be a snitch or an outright guard that guards the other prisoners in the jail. They want you to be crabs in a fucking bucket. <laughs> like I don't this is the most this is the worst shit this is like the opposite of don't be evil not to be yeah. that lib who's like they said they wouldn't be evil but like my fucking god if there wasn't Amazon this would be the most horrifying company in the world yeah, yeah I mean the one the one bright spot from this article was the fact that because I think we mentioned when we first talked about it that they started the union with like 225 people and when they announced it they jumped up to 400 and apparently, even in the short time since we recorded that, they're already up over 600. Um, Hell yeah. And since um, uh, one of their AI ethics co-leads, um, Timnit Gebru, was fired following a dispute over a research paper, uh, and she said she was specifically uh, terminated over an email sent in an internal company group. Since then, um, the spokesperson for the AWU said that the event has caused a hockey stick-like growth in signups for the union. Yeah. So... I hope AWU that you again being the alphabet workers union. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, hopefully the, the, we get more of that where pe- the more and more workers see that like these sorts of tactics are, are only going to make every aspect of their lives worse. And it's exactly why organizations like the AWU are so necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also just nice to see a lot of new, types of unions and and yeah. new unions forming right because like yeah. we were just talking about the AFL CIO and like the answer to that in a lot of ways is is to just ha- it like have political imagination on display in the union organizing environment right yeah uh, i was going to say speaking of necessary uh there's something that companies find necessary and it's to have a very nice public facing image when it comes to how <laughs> oh. they treat their workers and we are yep. actually going to cover something that i got tagged in a bunch of times cuz i uh have organized in music areas and and uh this is we're going to talk about the taylor guitar story which is a really popular acoustic guitar company. Uh, make they really make awesome instruments for sure. But uh, they have apparently they've gotten all these really great write ups about creating this um, ESOP, which is uh, they they actually claim in article headlines that they have uh, what is it. They've announced plans to sell complete ownership of company to its employees. And that sounds so nice, doesn't it? It sounds amazing. Like they're going to sell, they're going to get, basically give the company to the workers. Is that, is that right? We found it's actually not right. That's not what they're doing. (laughs) Well, isn't, have you, I've never gotten hired at a job and heard 
the line, oh, did you know that if you work here long enough, you can actually be a part owner of the company? I've never heard that in my life. This I is actually, a brand I actually new just thing. referenced Starbucks earlier when we were, when I was talking with <laughs> other people in another chat, and there was like two different people who just groaned. Just yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. If you know, you know. Yeah. So uh, this ESOP uh, is basically a plan to, to distribute the stocks of the company to employees um not necessarily in a way like a co-op would where there is only one stock per worker each worker has one stock there is an equal ownership of the uh company this is actually more so just a 401k program where you get a little bit of investment over time from being a worker there and if you don't die at the company it won't matter um the script is woke if it's a piece <laughs> of the company, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I don't want us to come off as like big downers here. Cause like, look, yeah, no, Taylor, go- Taylor going from completely private to a 100% ESOP is still objectively, you know, good for the employees. But right. yeah. I, the thing with it is that is the marketing of this is the most frustrating part because it's getting presented as, Oh, now the company is run by the employees or if they're actually being honest, they say owned by the employees, which is right. the important distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to elaborate cause I was like looking into this a little more cause I remembered hearing about this with some other companies, but this thing is, the way that these vehicles are structured, these financial instruments is so confusing and weird that they can present them. It's presented a lot like it's a co-op. They're like, yeah, no, the employees own the company. But like one of the things is Publix is an ESOP, the, the grocery chain. And it's like the, the, the cashiers at Publix do not have any influence on the operation of the company. Right. Like it's, it's yeah. good that, that their, you know, retirement benefit like gets to see distributed, you know, profits and that's, that's good. But the, the way that this is put off as if it's the same thing as a co-op is the problem. And so just to like elaborate on what an ESOP is, is in like Lena said, like in a co-op, like every worker becomes basically part of the board. Uh, where everyone has a vote and, you know, you get different structures and different co-ops. Sometimes there are, you know, more shares based on seniority and other things, but still it's essentially like, like you have some form of economic democracy where every worker has a voice in how the union or in how the uh, company is run. Uh, but in an ESOP, it's not really the same thing. It's more like, uh, you're just a shareholder, which I know like find like banks and stuff are like, yeah, being a shareholder means you have a say in how the companies run. Eh, that's not really true. Right. <laughs> well, this and, is like the same trick that Bob's red mill pulled a couple of years ago and everybody yeah. was like, Oh yeah, Bob's red mill is so woke. And I just had to look it up now. Cause I remember everyone talking about it. And it's like, Oh no, they just did an ESOP and eventually yeah. got to 100% employee stock ownership. Yeah. I think and, that it's actually important to outline, even just like in the article that is specifically praising this, the one that I kind of quoted the title of the, one of the, the lines in it is, uh, they noted that no changes will be made to their company's management structure, operation policies or practices. Like that's the what Joe the Biden fuck kind of employee ownership is that? Yeah. And that's what gives away the game really, because it's like, look, I'm sure working at this, you know, boutique guitar company is, is better than, you know, a lot of other jobs. I'm sure that like what, once they institute the ESOP, like they'll probably make some minor changes to working conditions, but that's the thing. It's like, there's no way that if you actually made this a truly employee run company, that there aren't a whole bunch of things about it 
especially quote, the management structure, operations, right. policies, and practices that they right. wouldn't want to change. And, and that really gives it a way that it, the shifting of to employee ownership is really just like you said, it's, it's like a fancy 401k and, yeah. and, and what, what these sorts of things do. Cause I, there was another article that I read that talked about these ESOPs and they talked about new Belgium brewing as an example where they went to a 100% ESOP program and then turned around and sold the company to uh, a multinational conglomerate. And yep. because it puts in these weird incentives where, because you're thinking of it like a shareholder instead of like, you know, like an, it actually being a democratically run establishment. If you have like a, a large number of like uh, older workers who may be nearing retirement and may have, you know, a larger set of these shares based on their seniority, they're materially incentivized once that stock price goes up to be like, Oh yeah, no, I don't want to sell my shares to, you know, these new come incoming employees. Let's sell the company because the stock price is way up there and then turn it back into a privately owned company. And it doesn't matter, you know, the screw the people that come to work there in the future. This is a way for, for me to get the most money. And that's not wow. to blame like yeah. the workers that's, for that. That's the material incentive. This yeah. sort of thing puts into how, place. How yeah. are these Silicon Valley Bitcoin nerds not getting in on the ground floor of ESOP <laughs> incubators? That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. that another kind of in like enlightening way of looking at this is specifically like a quote from one of the owners of the company. Um, and it, it's them saying that uh, an ESOP is good for people who want to stay involved in the company. They're specifically referring to them as owners because they don't want to like necessarily give up their power position. And then um, they continue to said, and it's good for people who care about their business and care about helping their employees grow their wealth. That sounds lovely. Um, as far as we know, this is the first time an ESOP has been sh- been shared with workers at a company in Mexico because I'm one of their manufacturing plants is in Mexico. And then okay, this nice. final line is what's really important. It says, our workers there can really use the financial help. Now, <laughs> I, I really want to like kind of take a second and step back. Like, If those people need financial help, do you think that a... 401k is gonna help them materially in this very moment like why don't you just raise their fucking wages yeah and at the very and that's yeah that's the other it's it's that's the thing it's like this will improve the lives i'm sure of most of the workers because they'll get better retirement benefits so it's certainly better than it being totally uh privately owned but the way that these incentives work it just turns everybody into basically your own individual like private equity shareholder person where all you're thinking about is, okay, well, when's the stock price on the company going to peak so I can cash out? That's the American dream, baby. Everything's a gamble. I want to sit at the (laughs) poker table with the big boys. That's all I've ever wanted to do. I mean, that's really how it is. That's why people get into this kind of stuff. And like, I mean, uh, probably a lot of people are going to be very responsible with it. It's true, but there's a social conditioning, especially in the United States that makes you want to treat yourself like a business, treat yourself like a brand. And this just kind of empowers a lot of people to do that, which is nice for them, but doesn't really mean a lot of structural change for anybody. I guess the final analysis is that this is better than nothing, but it's not a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and folks should just like, that's why you got to be real careful when you read these stories to like really dig into the language they use, because it's like the same thing you see with like billionaires, like, like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates were like, I'm giving away all of my money. And then mysteriously they get richer every year. Uh, Elon Musk <laughs> just said he was going to do that as soon as he yeah. was crowned the richest man in the world. He's like, I'm giving away everything. The only thing that I own is some clothes. And I'm like, that's a fucking lie. That's just a yeah. fucking lie. Don't fucking yeah. lie to us. So just. Just, just, just want people to, whenever yeah. you hear a business owner talking about the great things they're doing for their workers, be extraordinarily critical of that language. Yeah. yeah. Keep up, uh, paying attention to that and, uh, you know, check out some of our Patreon episodes cause we go deep into some of that language on, on those as well. Uh, but yeah, you were going to transition us right into the meme review and I oh, totally yeah, well, interrupted your <laughs> Speaking of things that are good for workers, at least on paper, we're going to move into the meme review now. And I say Wait, on paper because... you're printing because your memes out on paper? I print my <laughs> memes out and put them on my bedroom wall. I mean, <laughs> is there any better way to appreciate the meme? Like if I can't look at a meme like I'm in an art gallery... And then, like, you know what, look at yeah. my phone and then go back to appreciating the meme. Then what's the point? Yeah, I like uh, to see the difference. There's, like, an aesthetic thing. We're trying to, you know. <laughs> Actually, our first one is literally, like, a document, like, inside of Google Google Docs. <laughs> this uh, is the funniest thing. And, it, listener, you may have seen this one going around already because it's pretty popular. But it's, like, a photo of a computer screen. And it says, like, do not release until Biden approves secret Antifa plan to assign every American a fursona. And there's a few things that I love about this meme. The way that it's at an angle and a lot of the text is blurry makes it seem like it was taken hastily. Like you really needed to get this photo before you got caught taking it. And then the other thing I love about it is there's a bunch of text under it, but it's all just Laura Mipsum, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which is so fucking funny. I also love that this plays into the fact that Biden's term is just going to be a third Obama term because anybody who's terminally online will remember the excellent tweet from a while back uh, uh, from at Jet Gregoire, which I posted in the the Discord uh, in the meme collection, which is just... Obama interrogating him. What is my persona? Fuck you, asshole. <laughs> Obama throws a chair at the wall. How do I get a persona? Go to hell. <laughs> yeah. And see, Biden is just going to make that make that a reality. Just continuing Obama's quest to give everyone a persona. This is yeah, this is every- a, this is the central planning we're talking about. We need the government <laughs> handing out personas to everyone. <laughs> no, but yeah. yeah, it's funny. I, I love know. this one. This is like an eight or a nine for me. Yeah. This is some good memory. Yeah, it's a yeah. good one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I can go with that. I can go with like an eight or a nine. And then we have a a, cla- a spin on a classic. That's my favorite. This is actually my my favorite of the whole <laughs> meme review. This one yeah, right here. so it's like it's like a it's like a frontal a full frontal shot of like all the people quote unquote like raiding the Capitol building, it's even the, though they it's were basically the smoky just photo like, that you've probably seen. They're they're just throwing a party. A bunch of them were smoking weed in rooms of the building, which is cool, by the way. Don't let don't let yourself be be beguiled into thinking that's not cool just because some right wingers did it. Uh, but it's that photo and it just says this film is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan, which is <laughs> always funny. <laughs> yeah. That you know, I keep, old. I keep expecting that bit to stop being funny and yet it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> 
it touches on like so many little political tendrils and like, yeah, it makes you think it, it kind of reminds me of those, those memes where it's like, did you know that in the 1950s paper clips were actually invented by the U S military to figure out how to keep documents together in space? Look up operation paperclip to find out more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I actually, I, I want to rate this one and I'll, I'll give this one a nine just cause like, you're right. It just doesn't get old. I just feel like it doesn't get old. <laughs> It's just no, like the, it's, the, the, yeah. the the stupidest thing that they that like the movie industry did, uh, at least in a in a wildly popular movie, which was dedicated to the people who turned into like the Taliban, basically, yeah. right? Well, it's one of the groups that we armed and radicalized yeah. to prevent like, like people we didn't like from coming into power. Not to turn the meme review back into Cold War history day, <laughs> but like. I wouldn't be surprised if these people had had like some flat, weird, obscure flag associated with like the Mujahideen. Cause like, I remember like reading about like this after the Capitol riot that there were people in there with flags of the MEK, which is this obscure Iranian dissident group yeah. and like flags of South Vietnam <laughs> and like the Hong Kong Cringe flag. Well, there, there was <laughs> the one meme going around that I loved was like, this guy obviously Googled Georgia flag and just bought <laughs> yeah. the first result, but it it's actually the, the country Georgia. We have the a US to follow up with that exact thing <laughs> next, which is just a guy standing on a corner with a flag on the flag reads, don't mess with Texas, which is obviously imprinted on the flag. But can you guys identify this flag for me? It's got a, <laughs> that's, that's the Texas state flag. Is yeah, that I mean, it's, it's, state a, flag? It's, it's red, white, and blue. It's got one star in it. Texas yeah. Lone Star State. Hey, that's yeah. got to be the Texas flag. It's definitely not the flag of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. You know what they say? <laughs> Everything's bigger in Pyongyang. <laughs> yeah, especially that hotel. Yeah, that hotel is enormous. I, it's so I cool. I just think it's funny. I don't know if this is, do you, like, maybe the, this is a mistake. It, it could just be, like, a joke. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what this is. I, I hope this is like a cool communist though, because he's got like kind of like a, a Midwestern guy who's thinking about being a cop kind of haircut and boots. And yeah. it would be nice if that look wasn't only for people who were actually thinking about becoming a cop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know which is funnier. If, <laughs> if it's done <laughs> as a joke to trick people, which is funny. Or if it's somebody who just was like flag with one star on it. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fun. Well, I, I love it too, because also like the whole like Texan independence and self-reliance yeah. and like, and everything it's like Texans don't really do that in the present day at all. But North Korea is amazingly self-reliant and incredibly resource independent from the rest of the world because they've had to be, but they've also, you know, they've done a good job engineering solutions to it. Like someone yeah, I mean, who uh, was trying to Google information about how communists are fascists and get black shirts and reds by accident. <laughs> yeah, so, some guy's like tr trying to look up like ways to dunk on communists and then starts reading about Juche and is like, actually, this sounds pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't even know how to rate this one. Yeah, I have yeah, no idea. This is a mystery rating to me. This is just <laughs> shrug guy. Like needs yeah. more information, but very yeah. funny. Either either way. Yeah. So our last one is actually just a suggestion to our listeners. Uh, it's it's just a piece of. <laughs> <laughs> it's a piece of paper on a door which was a, written by management i mean it's a suggestion to not abide by this but the the thing says attention 
Whoever keeps posting Karl Marx quotes on the bulletin on the break room bulletin board needs to stop. <laughs> we could say sincerely management on there or yeah. whatever. But but yeah, uh I I just love that because I think that uh that should be the next thing that all of our listeners do. Why don't you just do a good Google of a nice little Karl Marx quote and when no one else is in the break room, because you can't, you got to eat alone. Just go ahead and slap that up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the thing about this that I like is I immediately doubt its its credibility. Like, is this real? Did management really type this up? But then I see that bulletin is spelled B U L L I T E N, and I immediately <laughs> believe that a manager typed this yes. out. <laughs> That's exactly the thing that I was drawn to. I was like, when I first looked at it, I was like, this is probably just some, you know, like sort of lefty worker who's like, oh, this will be funny. People get a kick out of this. Spelling, misspelling bulletin board is exactly the (laughs) in in all. And the other thing is it's in all caps, which is the other thing that like an angry middle manager would, would, would type out quickly with like steam coming out of his ears. This is like one of those, this is one of those things in the wild where if like somebody just said it to me as a joke, I'd be like, is that a drill tweet? That is a very funny (laughs) drill tweet. (laughs) Well, that's, that's what I want to see. Somebody should, somebody should print off in as low resolution as you possibly can the, the drill tweet of who is screaming at me to log off i will never <laughs> log off <laughs> yeah well uh that concludes our meme review or what do we want to rate that one you want to just like say i'm gonna oh, just I like get, it yeah i, I it like it it's, it's very thumbs good up. Yeah. <laughs> rate it thumbs up very nice i give this yeah. meme a high five yeah um thank you for uh participating in the show with us uh become a patron five dollars gets you twice as many episodes um you can join our discord to actually see all of these memes in real life on your screen uh as i will post them sometime before the next episode is released (laughs) and uh and give us a five-star review on apple Podcasts if you can uh follow john at uh at facebook villain on twitter me at solidarity beat and while you're in the Discord, you can find Dan. His name is Cal Boehner. Um, and check out Beep Beep Lettuce and Red Game Table. Is that right? Yep. Red Game we Table, We are right. just about to be starting uh, Season 3. Awesome. Well, uh, again, we'll see you next week in the Patreon. Uh, solidarity forever. Hell yeah. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. There are the and the night under bridges. Over by the river, down in the park, through the winter. But there's a house that I know, safe and warm. And no one ever goes there down, where the priests bless the wine.
only recognise two tunes, Silent Night and God Save the Queen. And I only know which is which, because one of them, everybody stands up for.